кадре, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. It has become one of the critical fault lines in the geopolitical clash between Russia and the West. The Black Sea region, which encompasses NATO allies Bulgaria, Romania, and Turkey, Western partners Ukraine and Georgia, and, of course, an increasingly aggressive and revengeist Russia, was a tense and contested area even before Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Since the invasion, this competition and the potential for conflict have only escalated. So what is the future of this vital region? And what can the United States and its allies do to help secure it in the face of a revisionist and increasingly dangerous regime in the Kremlin? Well, today's guests recently released an important report that lays out a new strategy for the vital Black Sea region. So stick around. Hello from my makeshift office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlene McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from historic downtown Washington is Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. Welcome back to The Vertical, Jeff. Thanks. Thanks for having me again. Thanks for coming on again. And also joining us from our nation's capital, Lisa Aronson, a research fellow for Europe and NATO at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and a non-resident senior fellow at the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. Welcome to The Vertical, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And Lisa and Jeff are also the co-authors of the recent report, The Inhospitable Sea, toward a U.S. new U.S. strategy for the Black Sea region. And I should also add that Lisa's and Jeff's views are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. So first of all, congratulations to both of you on an important and timely report. And just to get the ball rolling, I wanted to give you both a chance to lay out what your top line conclusions and observations were, and then we can kind of dive into the details. Why don't you get us started, Jeff? Okay, sure. So obviously the Black Sea has been one of the main theaters of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, but it has been an area that the United States and NATO have long struggled to engage. Um it is only partially uh, within NATO. Uh, three of the six states around the Black Sea littoral are NATO members. Uh, it's Romania, Bulgaria, and Turkey. Uh, two are NATO partners, that uh, are Georgia and Ukraine. Uh, there's also Russia, uh, of course, which is the main revisionist actor in the region. Um, and there are some other weak states, uh, vulnerable states, in the wider Black Sea region uh, as well. Countries like uh, Armenia, Moldova, uh, and others. So this is a, a volatile area with a lot of fault lines. Uh, it's one that is on the uh, geographic periphery uh, of NATO, and it's one where the states comprising the region don't have a common vision of the threats that they face or a common uh, understanding of how um, they should respond to those threats. And so it's never been a top order priority for the United States uh, or for NATO. Um, Yet it is uh, a region that is uh, strategically vital because of the potential for conflict there and because of its location at the crossroads of a number of important uh, axes connecting Europe to uh, the Caucasus, the Middle East, and Central Asia. So what happens in the Black Sea uh, is very important for European security and for NATO. Uh, and yet NATO has not uh, really been able to come to grips with uh, addressing the security challenges in the region for all of these reasons. Yeah, and there, I mean, it's its not for a lack of trying. I was at the NATO summit in Warsaw back in 20, I think it was 2015, when NATO wanted to create a Black Sea flotilla, and it was torpedoed by Turkey, um, and with with with, a, with an assist from Bulgaria, um, with a smiling Putin in the background. Um, and it's, it is, you know, it's, a fr it's one of the fronts between Russia and the West, really. It's an overlooked front. We don't, it's a maritime front. So we tend to not to look at it like the, you know, the, the like, like Ukraine or Belarus or some of these other fronts 
it's an overlooked front. Um, Lisa, what what did, what, did, what do you want to add? What are your top top line takeaways? Yeah, observations? my top line takeaway. You know, the U.S. administration is working on a new comprehensive uh, strategy towards the Black Sea and looking deeper into this region over the past two years. I've also really been struck by what a strategic blind spot it was for the United States and for particularly Western European allies. I'm thinking of Germany and France in particular. Romania definitely has made an effort to call our attention to that region, having pushed forward this idea of a flotilla, as you mentioned, only for it to be turned down, partly because of Turkey and Bulgaria, but also because of Western European allies that were still motivated by concern around um, provoking Russia at a sensitive time. Additionally, we can't forget that the alliance after the annexation of Crimea was focused on the northeast part of the region because the assessment at the time was that the Baltics were the most vulnerable to some sort of um, incursion from Russia at the time. So there was a tension within NATO between those allies more focused on let's reassure the Baltics and the northeast of Poland and allies along the southern Mediterranean shore that were more focused about dealing dealing with terrorism, migration, and refugees. So between those two tensions and with a Western Europe and U.S. not interested in provoking Russia, mm-hmm. the Black Sea region ends up as this strategic blind spot. So it's great news that there's more attention going to that to that to security in that region from now. Let's let's dive into some of the some some of the minutia. I mean, what, the thing that always strikes me is when you look at the Black Sea on the surface, right? It looks like it should be a NATO lake, if you just look at it simplistically, right? Um, of the six littoral states, there are three NATO members: Turkey, Romania, and Bulgaria, and two NATO partners: Georgia and Ukraine. That looks pretty good. That looks like a NATO lake until you dive a little deeper. Uh, because when you examine it close, uh, a little closer, it's not the case. Uh, Turkey and Bulgaria are often problematic allies. That's a charitable way of putting it. Georgia is, to say the least, has become a bit of a problematic partner. Um, and Ukraine's fighting off an invasion by Russia. Um, you have you you have the the, the militarized uh, Russian enclaves, uh, R- Russian kind of protectorates in Abkhazia, which actually adds to Russian military power in the Black Sea. You have the Russian annexation of Crimea. So it, 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 when you look at it a little deeper, it risks becoming a Russian lake in a lot of ways, like it was in the Soviet in Soviet times. It was a Soviet lake. In the first part of the program, I want to look at the. I want to kind of follow your chapter structure because I think it was, a, it was an excellent chapter structure. I want to look at the threat of a revisionist Russia first and what it means for the region, and then look a little deeper at the perspectives of the other littoral states. In the second segment, after the below the fold, we'll take a look at your recommendations for U.S. policy, which I which I thought were were, were excellent. So, how is the challenge of a revisionist Russia manifests itself in the Black Sea region, and how has this changed since February twenty fourth of last year, Jeff? Yeah, so I, I think the implications of a revisionist Russia really became clear uh, in twenty fourteen with the annexation of Crimea. Uh, because whatever else it was, Crimea was always uh, an important platform for projecting naval power uh, in the Black Sea. It was the home base for the Russian and then later the Soviet Black Sea fleet dating back to the time of uh, Catherine the Great when uh, Russia first annexed the the Crimean Peninsula. And it remains that uh, today. And so when Russia took over Crimea in 2014, it acquired uh, the port facilities at Sevastopol. It acquired the bulk of Ukraine's uh, Black Sea Fleet, which was then rolled into the Russian fleet. Um, and it obtained the ability to project power off of the Crimean Peninsula across the waters of the Black Sea to all of the other uh, littoral areas to a much greater extent than it had been able to do before. Following 2014, uh, Russia put substantial resources into building up its military capabilities on Crimea. Um, so both naval platforms, but also um, anti-ship, uh, air defense, uh, and other kinds of capabilities, um, which really did tilt the the balance of power, which since the Soviet collapse had been much more um, multipolar, uh, let's say, than uh, was the case before. And so now uh, you have uh, Ukraine, which doesn't have much of a navy since losing Crimea. Uh, you have Georgia, uh, whose navy was basically sunk uh, in 2008, um, and 
much of whose littoral territory in Abkhazia is also under Russian occupation. Um, and so Russia is, is very clearly the largest uh, and most powerful naval actor in the region. And it uses that capability to hold at risk the assets of the other littoral states, uh, which constrains their freedom of action and it constrains their decision making. And you can see this in the way that all of these countries have responded to the, the full scale invasion of Ukraine that began last year, um, where, again, kind of putting Romania to the side, um, they have hedged in, in various ways. And in part, that's out of a sense of their own vulnerability. Uh, you certainly see that in, in Turkey uh, and in Georgia. Uh, and of course, you know, Ukraine's capabilities are now um, deeply compromised. So uh, Russia has that ability now, and it's, it, it puts at risk the assets and the political uh, decision-making of, of the other littoral states. Yeah, and the, the construction of the Kerch Bridge, effectively, even before the full-scale invasion, cut off a lot of Ukraine's access. Um, now, effectively, Russia's turned the Azov Sea into a Russian lake, yeah. uh, which before... Let me, yeah, so, I mean, there's also Ukraine here, right, which, you know, before the war, exported a lot of its resources, you know, grain, and among other things, you know, through the maritime route, through its ports on the Black Sea, and then through the Turkish Straits. Um, now, I mean, except for the grain deal that's been negotiated to allow some limited exports from a couple of places, it can't do that. And so Ukraine's own ability to connect to the outside world uh, is is limited. Uh, its economic possibilities are limited. Basically, Russia has it kind of uh, around the throat through its control of, of the egress from the Black Sea. Um, and it means that Ukraine's economic independence, uh, which is vital to its political independence is, is also at risk. Right. And their only real access to the Black Sea now is the port of Odessa. Um, yeah. and, and that's the stretch all these take at the beginning. Of right. The right. Unsuccessfully. Lisa, anything you would want to add here about the Russian's revision? Just jump in. You, you, you use this phrase NATO Lake, which is quite provocative. And I just wanted to sort of <laughs> share some thoughts on that. You know, I think the alliance um, certainly don't speak on behalf of the alliance, but doesn't have any intention of having the Black Sea become a, a NATO lake. I think there are three objectives for, for the alliance, not for the Black Sea, not in any particular order. But the first one is really strengthening defense and deterrence for the three member states. And that's by implementing these decisions that were taken in Madrid and specifically the new concept for deterrence and defense of the Euro-Atlantic area. So there's a lot that goes into that, helping the allies modernize, get off of Soviet legacy equipment, make sure there's more pre-positioned forces, make sure the new battle groups can surge to brigades. So, you know, there's a lot of work being done for the deterrence. Secondly, it's supporting Ukraine through the comprehensive assistance package. This is what the alliance is doing. It's not lethal. At the moment, it's medical, counter-drone, amphibious bridges, food, food, fuel, and also stepping up its support for the other NATO partner countries, specifically Moldova, Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Georgia. Moldova's constitutional neutrality should not necessarily, should not get in the way of a closer relationship with the alliance. So NATO is doing what it can to increase capacity building and resilience for these countries. And then I would say third, it's restoring this kind of rules-based order there, the freedom of navigation in the sea, territorial integrity, sovereignty, the rules of the order that even Russia has signed up to um, in the past. So I, I say rather than thinking about bring, turning this into a NATO lake, it's NATO is probably pursuing those three, those three objectives mm -hmm. in the region. No, I'm, I, I use that, that those terms, uh, Provi intentionally provocatively. Uh, but what are the implications, Lisa, of it becoming a Russian lake? Because I think there is a real possibility of that. Russia is trying to kind of establish hegemony over the Black Sea area. And uh, and, and that, that has implications. Even before the full-scale invasion, you couldn't bury, barely a couple of days would go by. You wouldn't hear about Russia buzzing U.S. warships or buzzing, buzzing uh, U.S. US uh, planes in the Black Sea area. What are the implications? I want to get you both of you to weigh in on this of a of it becoming a Russian lake. Sure, let me jump in. Jeff said you Russia had Ukraine around its around its neck. I think it was Admiral Fogo who recently suggested Russia has it's like a boa constrictor around Ukraine's neck. It's squeezing and squeezing and squeezing. Even if the war is primarily playing out in the on land, Russia still has all sorts of other tools to 
project political and military power at sea, including kilo-class submarines that haven't featured in this, the laying of numerous sea mines, the uh, ability to call snap exercises to even if they are canceled, just to demonstrate it has the ability to control this maritime environment. So the implications from my perspective are we have to make sure we really um, build up the coastal defenses, particularly for uh, Romania and Bulgaria. And Ukraine has done an impressive uh, job keeping Russia's surface vessels at bay through the Neptunes and through the anti-ship missiles from the U.S. and the U.K. But there's more to be done on coastal defense. There's much more to be done on uh, resilience and uh, counter-hybrid uh, uh, counter hybrid warfare from the Alliance's perspective, the deploying of these counter-hybrid support teams, and then building the connectivity infrastructure that I think we'll talk about later in the program. Yeah, and of course, you mentioned uh, Admiral James Fogo, who, of course, is the former commander of the U.S. Sixth Fleet. For our anybody among our, the, the few among our listeners who don't know that, he's been a guest on the podcast in the past. Jeff, you're a Russia guy. What do you what do you see as the implications of a of a, of a Russia of it becoming a Russian lake de facto? Well, I think the goal here ultimately is to hold is for Russia to be able to hold at risk the assets of the other littoral states. And that includes uh the ones who are NATO members. Um and in that way be able to shape their own decision making calculus. And I think the real uh wild card here is Turkey because uh, Turkey is after Russia, the, the main player uh, in the Black Sea, and in some ways um, has actually seen its its stock as a naval power increase since the start of the war in Ukraine, um, but also is a country that has a very independent foreign policy, despite the fact that it's a NATO member. Um, and much of that independence centers around the relationship with Russia that uh, has been cultivated primarily uh, by the Erdogan government. And of course, we can talk about what happens if uh, Erdogan is <laughs> no longer the president. Um, but under that government has been very much cultivated to the frustration sometimes of uh, Western partners. But, um, you know, central to that is the idea that the regional states, the littoral states themselves, uh, are responsible for maintaining security in the Black Sea. Now, what does that look like? Whose definition of security prevails? Um, that is very much at stake uh, in this war. And I think if Russia has uh, naval and other sorts of military preeminence in the wider Black Sea region, um, it can use that to coerce uh, the other littoral states, including Turkey, um, in ways that force them to adhere to sort of Russia's vision of what regional security looks like. So to exclude uh, a multilateral presence, uh, to uh, you know, regulate passage through the Turkish Straits in ways that benefit Russian interests um, and potentially in other areas, because, of course, Russia and Turkey have a very complex relationship that entails interactions in Libya and Syria and the South Caucasus and a bunch of other places. Uh, and so they're looking for leverage points. And I think the, the Black Sea is potentially a very important leverage point. Yeah, and you give us the perfect segue here, Jeff. It's almost as if we planned this. Because um, I want to kind of shift and start to look at the perspectives of these littoral states uh, other than Russia. And I wanted to start with what I call the problematic allies, uh, Turkey and Bulgaria. Um, Turkey, we are recording on May 11th and three days on May 14th. Turkey will be having elections, so which could really change. I mean, by the time people are listening to this, maybe the situation will have changed dramatically or maybe not. But we're going to proceed now from that. So let's let's talk about Turkey and Bulgaria. Why are they problematic allies in this sense? And what? How, how do they see the Black Sea? All right. So let me talk about Turkey, and then um, I'll pass it to Lisa to talk about Bulgaria. Um, as far as Turkey goes, again, it, it's a country that sees itself as being not just another NATO ally, but one that is uh, an independent regional power with its own uh, multi-vector perspective, um, and that includes uh, acting independently uh, in areas where it sees its own interests at stake. Um, and in the Black Sea has been committed for quite a while to maintaining this idea of a regional condominium approach. And this, I would argue, is not unique to Erdogan and, and the AK Party, but this has significant support within uh, what you might call the deep state, which ironically is a term that we get from the Turks. Um, and it, it's a very rational 
uh, strategic approach in some ways. If you think about the long history of Russian-Turkish confrontation or Russo-Ottoman confrontation, the Black Sea and the Straits were often at the forefront of what they were fighting about. And, and so Turkey's approach since the signing of the Montreux Convention in the 1930s has been to limit the passage through the Straits of outside uh, ships, warships, uh, and to therefore sort of maintain uh, the Black Sea itself as a zone of, you know, where this regional condominium prevails. And that means that on the one hand, um, Russia can uh, be secure in the Black Sea. It doesn't have to worry about other powers, ships coming through the Straits the way that they did in the Crimean War or in the First World War. Um, and in exchange, Russia doesn't challenge Turkey's right to maintain control of the Straits and the surrounding um, land, which it has challenged on a number of occasions, uh, most recently under Stalin. So it, it preserves that kind of balance. And, and that is a position that is very deeply held uh, in Turkey. And I don't think it's going to change irrespective of whether Erdogan is in power or not. But it also means that because Turkey is also a member of NATO, um, that NATO's attempts to do more in the Black Sea on a multilateral basis have always run into various kinds of frictions uh, and objections from Turkey. Now, where I do think Erdogan matters is that, particularly since 2015-2016, um, his relationship with the West and the United States in particular has been pretty bad. Um, and as part of that uh, deterioration in the relationship, has uh, actively cultivated Russia as a hedge. And we've seen this with the decision to purchase the S-400 uh, air defense system. Uh, we've seen it with the um, uh, the participation in the so-called Astana framework in Syria. All of these, I think, are um, areas where there could be uh, some greater flexibility on the part of Ankara if the general tenor of its relationship with the West and with the United States were better. Um, but because of the resentments that have built up over U.S. support for the YPG in Syria and uh, the role that Erdogan saw the United States playing, justified or not, in the 2016 coup attempt, I think that's going to be very hard as long as he remains in power. Do you think a post-Erdogan Turkey would be possibly comfortable with something like this Black Sleaf flotilla that NATO was, that Romania was pushing for uh, years back? I would be a little skeptical because, again, I think there's a general uh, consensus in Turkey that you want to adhere very strongly to the terms of the Montreux Convention and not have a multilateral presence or a, the presence of warships from non-littoral states having something like a, a permanent presence in the Black Sea. Now, there are things that you can do support to have an enhanced NATO presence in the Black Sea that fall under the restrictions uh, of the Bantu Convention. And that means more uh, rotational presence, and that means doing things other than uh, specifically naval uh, operations, doing more with like uh, coastal defense, air defense, um, and the like. So I think you can have a larger NATO presence in the Black Sea with a different kind of political relationship, just not necessarily uh, a permanent uh, naval force. Right. Okay, Lisa, tell us about the other problematic ally, that being Bulgaria, because Turkey's the main problematic ally, but they're not the only one. Sure. I might have, I might have used that term prior to spending a, the week in Bulgaria Um for this study, and I think after after having spent a week there specifically to to pursue research for this study, I'm not sure I would use the word problematic. I think it's important to remember that Bulgaria is a member of NATO. They're a member of the EU. After uh, they and all of the main political parties support Bulgaria's place in the Euro-Atlantic institutions, including the Socialist Party, which might be the more, quote-unquote, problematic one vis-a-vis um, -vis our, our, our interests there. But even the social Bulgarian Socialist Party, that was legal successor to the Communist Party, supports Bulgaria's place in NATO and in the EU and sees Bulgaria's security as best delivered in those institutions. The reason for the complexity and the equivocation, if you will, on, on um, Bulgaria's position vis-a-vis um, -vis the alliance is complex. 
It has to do first with Bulgaria having prioritized good relations with Moscow, especially up through 2022, for reasons that make a lot of sense. There are significant cultural and historical ties, and in the Bulgarian national consciousness, Russia was the liberator from the Ottoman rule and is partly responsible for helping to create the modern Bulgarian state. So there is this this background. And meanwhile, the European Union and, and NATO haven't been great partners either. There's frustration in Romania and Bulgaria still being out of Schengen. There's a sense in in Germany and in, there's a sense in Bulgaria that Western Europe still sees Eastern Europe as backwards in some way. So there are frustrations on both sides between in Bulgaria looking to the West and looking to Russia. And then I see Bulgaria more as a victim of Russia's what we call malign influence. It has enormous levers to pull in Bulgaria, and it has used them. Most importantly, it's the corruption, counter corruption and judicial issues in Bulgaria, which give, which have given the Kremlin free reign. But there's also been the energy dependence, the fact that Bulgaria flies MiGs and relies on Soviet legacy equipment for which it gets repair parts and has strong ties to Russia. There's the economic interdependencies, well, dependency on Russia. And then there's the information environment where the languages are so similar and Russia's control over Bulgaria's information environment has allowed it enormously rich to pull at these domestic political tensions and create this political instability in Bulgaria that really suits the Kremlin's interests. So I can't even count how many elections there have been in Bulgaria. I can't keep track since we've even started working on this report, but the political instability suits the Kremlin. So it, rather, I think we ought to be thinking about how can we anchor Bulgaria in these institutions, which all political parties support by developing its resilience it's, uh, it's, um, and its ability to continue to cut these ties. It's done a remarkable job after Russia shut off the gas, pivoting quickly, setting up alternative energy sources. It's working on the counter-corruption. So I think we should be thinking about Bulgaria as uh, 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 anchored in the Euro-Atlantic institutions, but in need of additional support to build up its resilience to these. It's what we call Russian malign info. Yeah, you might Go ahead, Jeff. If I, say, if I could just jump in here, too, I, I think this economic dependence point is really important, and it applies to Turkey as well, uh, for which Russia is a huge uh, market for Turkish agricultural goods. Uh, Turkey gets a substantial amount of its energy from Russia, uh, and Russia has uh, put a lot of uh, investment into the country to help um, prop up the economy and prop up the lira at a time when, um, for a variety of reasons, they're not doing very well. And I think that those relationships and that dependence uh, is something that many of the states in this in this region uh, face, and it makes them incredibly, incredibly reluctant to uh, you know, risk a rupture that would have significant economic consequences for themselves. Yeah, so the glass is more, you see, you both seem to see the glass is more half full than half empty. And in I'm glad in your policy, Rex, we'll get in the second half, you talked about democratic resilience because I think that is one of the keys. Before we move to Georgia and Ukraine, I want to talk about the the non-problematic ally, uh, or at least the, where, where I see it, and that's Romania. Um, how does Romania see this and why, do, why does their approach differ so much from the Bulgarian and Turkish approach? Sure. Let me jump in on that one. I think, you know, as we started off this podcast, Romania has been calling for more U.S. and NATO attention to the Black Sea region for a very long time and with somewhat limited success through uh, through 2022, including calling for that rotational um, uh, permanent multinational Black Sea force, force back in 2016. Now, I think I see Romania as uh, leading the NATO alliance in the Southeast in terms of thinking strategically about the region, about de defense and deterrence in the region. It has, um, see, let's see, in terms of its modernization, it began quite a serious national modernization program shortly after Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea, I think between 2015 and 2018. Its defense spending really started to go up. I think they're planning to reach 2.5% of GDP this year. So there's quite a, um, a 
quite a national modernization process underway. It also has an incredibly strategic geographic position on that northeast, uh, northwest shore of the Black Sea. Um, and by way of that position, the MK Air Base there has become quite an important um, uh, hub, regional hub for the alliance, where you have the Romanian, U.S., Italian, and French troops are all contributing to NATO's deterrence posture there and to the air policing missions. Romania is now engaged in more naval patrols, doing a lot of the sweeping for the sea mines and protecting some of those communications lines. And some of the grain transport as part of the uh, Black Sea grain deal does go via Romanian port. So it is offering some additional exit routes for Ukrainian agriculture via the Danube Delta and Romanian port. So I think Romania is doing what it can uh, as a NATO kind of anchor state in the Black Sea region. And when we get into the recommendations, I think there's more that could be done bilaterally with uh, Bulgaria. But Romania is also reaching out in a special way to Moldova, given the special connection between those two countries. I think I saw this month a trilateral uh, Ukraine-Moldova-Romania uh, agreement to start building on their security, uh, political, and economic cooperation to try to strengthen Moldova in particular, but also Ukraine uh, against Russia's uh, Russian influence and aggression. I'll leave it there. I increasingly look at Romania as the um, as, as, as one of the key anchors, the most reliable allies in the region. Um, I now want to I want to turn to Georgia and Ukraine. You didn't have a specific a separate chapter on Ukraine. You had one on Georgia. Um, Ukraine was kind of subsumed in the because yeah. it's at war with Russia under the under the Russian re revisionism and, 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 and aggression. But yeah. let's talk about Georgia briefly. Jeff. This is a, a, a country you and I both know pretty well. I'll be going there next week. Um, it went from being very pro-Western under the Saakashvili government, uh, now not so much under the Georgian dream. How does how does the how does this look from Georgia, and what are the perspectives there? Sure. And let me just say the reason we didn't have a section on Ukraine in the report is because we couldn't actually travel to Ukraine to do interviews, and we thought that it didn't really make sense to you know try and provide a perspective if we couldn't actually get there and, and talk to people, and we couldn't go, of course, because of the war. Um, as far as Georgia goes, um, again, the economic interdependence with Russia has always been there. And there was an attempt um, to lessen that dependence after the 2008 war and the imposition of sanctions, which lasted for a while. But after 2013, when the Georgian dream government comes to power, there was a very conscious decision to try and move towards some kind of normalization with Russia. Um, and there's a strategic rationale for that, but I think there's more to it. And it really has to do with the sort of democratic rollback that Georgia has has undergone over the past decade. And one of the things that I heard over and over again from interlocutors uh, in Tbilisi when I was there working on this report was just the extent of democratic backsliding and state capture that have taken place. And some people would argue that this is part of a, uh, is connected to Russian influence. Uh, the main financial backer for the, the Georgian Dream Party, a guy by the name of Bedzina Ivanashvili, um, has longstanding financial ties to Russia. Um, he was briefly prime minister. He's now kind of the, the gray cardinal behind the scenes. Um, and I, I think some people in the opposition, you know, kind of see him as being a stalking horse for Russian influence. I think others, though, kind of look at the current ruling elite in Georgia as being more opportunistic uh, and simply uh, kleptocratic uh, in a way that is very familiar, uh, unfortunately, in other parts of, of the post-Soviet region. And that it's not that they have an ideological or a political affinity for Russia so much as it is that in pursuing their kleptocratic ambitions, they're undermining Georgia's capacity to integrate with your Atlantic institutions and leaving it more vulnerable to Russian malign influence. Uh, so either way you slice it, I think what we've seen in Georgia um, is a country that uh, has been very cautious in terms of the role that it's seeking to play uh, in the region. It's a weak country. Um, there's a lot of fear that uh, Georgia could be next after Ukraine, irrespective of whether uh, Russia wins or loses Ukraine. 
Ukraine, um, and that the West wouldn't be able to protect Georgia or help Georgia to nearly the same extent that it has helped that those that the West has helped and supported Ukraine. Um, and so the strategic argument is we have to be careful. You know, we don't want to uh, get involved with sanctions. We don't want to look too closely at the flow of of Russian uh, migrants who are coming across. Uh, you know, fleeing the war. And Georgia has a very liberal visa regime, and, and there's very little sort of attempt to try and identify who these people are, whether they're genuine refugees, whether they're agents of influence or something else. Mm -hmm. um, and so just, I, I think that the Georgian government, uh, which is different from Georgian society, mm -hmm. is very much trying to keep its head down. Because I, I think it's also important to keep in mind that you talked about how uh, you know, Georgia was very pro-Western under the the old UNM government. Um, I think public opinion is still largely pro-Western. Mm -hmm. I was very struck when I was in Tbilisi, uh, and this was in the spring of, of 2022, um, just the, the number of Ukrainian flags um, on government buildings, on private buildings as well. Um, you know, there was a real kind of aversion to uh, speaking Russian in public. Uh, you know, I, a lot of people don't speak English, although more and more do, um, you know, when I had to try and speak Russian to get around, like, you know, kind of got dirty looks for doing that, um, which I think has been true on some, which is new, well. which is very new yeah. that will used to not be the case. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that the public mood has really, you know, kind of shifted, but because of this democratic backsliding and the state capture that, that has gone on. The ability of that public opinion to really shape politics and, and political outcomes has been uh, reduced, and Georgia is becoming a more, um, you know, post-Soviet state uh, yeah. again, and that has real implications for its relationship with the Euro-Atlantic world. So, you know, when the EU announced last year that it was uh, conferring candidate status on uh, Moldova and Ukraine, it was very striking that Georgia wasn't included on that list. Which was uh, which was really stuck in the craw of, of a lot of people in civil society there. They saw they 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 uh, they, they 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 saw that as a real snub. Not and many th that that they thought the government deserved. I mean, I see two X factors here. One is you mentioned Jeff George and civil society because they are they have not you know slowed down a bit. They just got that foreign agent law uh, taken to, yeah. uh, taken off the books. And um and the other is is the outcome of the war in Ukraine, which could potentially reduce Russia's ability to project power. Which could give the 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 civil society the op the 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 upper end. We'll we'll see how those kind of play out going forward. Before we jump into the recommendations, though, I'm keeping an eye on the clock here. I did want to briefly touch on Ukraine, um, and and how the outcome of the war in Ukraine. If we can just kind of go through this quickly, how that may or may not affect the future of Black Sea security. I don't know if either of you want to tackle mm -hmm. that. Um, let me just say one thing quickly, and then I if Lisa has additional thoughts, but, um, you know, one is we've seen that actually the Russian Navy is not in great shape. Obviously the, the flagship of the fleet, uh, the Moskva was sunk, um, by a country without a Navy. Yeah. By a country without a Navy. But that actually tells you something important, which is that, uh, coastal defense, uh, and air defense in an enclosed sea, like the black sea is really, really important. And I think that you're going to see more investments in these capabilities by um, the littoral states who can't necessarily build capital ships to match Russian capabilities, but are going to develop these capabilities in order to limit uh, what Russia can do. And in fact, since the, the sinking of the Moskva, the Russian Black Sea Fleet has largely retreated from Crimea. Um, it's mostly based now at um, Novorossiysk uh, in the sort of far eastern uh, regions. So I think that's kind of the, the good news story here. The bad news story here is if Russia wins the war on land, then in some ways it doesn't really matter what happens uh, at sea. Uh, and, you know, we're waiting again. It's it's mid-May, uh, the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which may be the most telegraphed counteroffensive in, in the history of military <laughs> operations, may or may not have started. Uh, but we'll see how that plays out and we'll see how uh, sustained Western support is. But, uh, you know, I, I think we just don't know. I think there's still... Uh, I think reason to be concerned that Russia could achieve a lot of its strategic objectives, including dominating much of the Ukrainian Black Sea coast. Lisa, anything to add here? Yeah, let me just add, you know, we don't know how the counteroffensive or how the war um, will unfold. And, you know, we, we can't 
predict that. Um, but even if Ukraine is successful in, let's say, recapturing all of its territory, at, um, including Crimea, I think we just have to be mindful that Russia still had via the Black Sea and all of these other levers of influence, the economic dependencies, the corruption, the state capture, has all of these other tools at hand. So in, in my view, it's important to think about a maritime strategy, whether it's more coastal defense, uh, air defense, uh, deterrence, uh, posture in the NATO allies, cooperation and exercises with the NATO partners to make sure that we don't lose sight of the the competition at sea while we are enabling Ukraine to um, to get into the best possible position before the counteroffensive. Right. These are two sides of the same coin in a lot of ways. That's a good place to shift gears. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at what the United States and its allies can and should do to forge a more effective Black Sea strategy. I'd like to remind you that you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlanta Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from historic downtown Washington is the one and only Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies international security. And also joining us from our nation's capital is Lisa Aronson, a research fellow for Europe and NATO at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and a non-resident senior fellow at the Scope Corrupt Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. Jeff and Lisa are also the co-authors of the recently published report, The Inhospitable Sea Toward a New U.S. Strategy for the Black Sea Region. And I should add, Lisa's and Jeff's views are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can still follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. So in this report, Jeff and Lisa, you argue that many of the building blocks for a comprehensive U.S. strategy are actually already in place, but at the same time, there's still a lot of work to do. Um, for our listeners, could you explain what these building blocks are that that, that are that are in place, and what we still need to do to to uh, to forge a more effective strategy? And we'll get, we'll get into more U.S. leadership bolstering NATO in the Southeast, uh, pursuing a strategic equilibrium with Turkey, and of course, democratic resilience. But just if you can get us rolling, either of you can jump in here. I'm not sure who wants to do, go first. Go ahead, Doug. You're both pointing at each other. Uh, you're you're, you're right. too polite. <laughs> well, okay. So, yes, I mean, some of the, the building blocks are, are already in place. Um, the war in Ukraine has prompted a rethinking of uh, dependence on Russia uh, for energy and for, um, you know, investment and, and other kinds of, of goods. Um, so the, the move to sort of lessen the vulnerability to that kind of Russian coercion is underway in a lot of places, uh, not everywhere, uh, among the littoral states, but certainly, uh, in many of them. Um, there's also, uh, a much larger, uh, allied military presence in the region than it was prior to February, 2022. Um, and some of this, uh, is under NATO. Some of this is, uh, individual states uh, in the region in partnership with the U.S. or, or with one another, um, moving to bolster um, security, um, spending more, uh, you know, moving towards the the 2% of GDP target that, that NATO set for itself. Uh, so these capabilities are going to be there. Um, you're also going to have a battle-tested uh, and well-armed uh, Ukrainian military um, so in, in that sense, you have some of the tools and I think, uh, now what really neat, what is really needed is a framework a strategy, if you will, 
for figuring out how to take those tools and apply them in a way that actually enhances security for the entire region. And you you, you lay out a, a framework here. Again, it, it, it's correct me if I'm wrong, it has four parts. Um, increasing U.S. leadership and presence, number one. Number two, bolstering NATO in the Southeast. Number three, pursuing a strategic equilibrium with Turkey. And finally, democratic resilience. Um, you could, either one of you, I don't know which one of these you each are more comfortable discussing, but jump in on any of the four and we'll just go through them. Sure. Let me let me just jump in and add one comment to what Jeff said, which leads us to our first one, which is around U.S. leadership. You know, it's difficult to think of the Black Sea region as a single coherent region because because of the different constellations of membership within NATO and the EU or not, and because of how different these nations are and the way that they see the threat or not from Russia and the situations of the Black Sea and the Euro-Atlantic institutions. So they're, they don't think of themselves as a region. So this is where we thought that only the U.S. has the, the weight uh, to help try to, to catalyze, to help bring the, at least create a common picture of a threat assessment amongst the NATO allies and partners at a minimum. And that can be done through senior level diplomatic visits. I think, you know, prior to the Secretary of Defense's visit to Bulgaria, I'm not sure he had been there for a very long time, senior level congressional delegation delegations, um, helping these countries to modernize their militaries, backfill any of the gaps for equipment that they're sending to Ukraine and support their transition to Western NATO standard equipment, and then encouraging bilateral, trilateral, and minilateral cooperation with, with partners. So that's something that the U.S. can do. And this would fall under U.S. leadership and presence and bolstering NATO in the Southeast, I would I would mm -hmm. argue. Anything to add on those two points, Jeff, before we go into the more thorny question of, of pursuing strategic equilibrium with Turkey? Not much. I mean, the, the U.S. is still the indispensable ally within NATO. And I think the only way that you get to a shared threat perspective or a common analysis, a common picture of, of the nature of the challenge and a common response is if the U.S. actually takes up the mantle of, of trying to get the other allies and partners on board with that. And I think it, the partners are important here, too, because, you know, this is about NATO as an alliance and it's about ensuring that Article 5 guarantees can be effectively implemented. But there are also countries like Moldova, like Georgia, um, that are not covered by Article 5, I mean, Ukraine, too, for that matter, um, but our NATO partners, and in a lot of ways, are the ones that are the most vulnerable to this Russian revisionist uh, drive. And I think a lot of what this U.S. leadership needs to focus on is figuring out how do you take the tools that you have, NATO and its various committees and, and capabilities, and coordinate them and apply them to helping enhance the security of these non-member states. Uh, and that's something that really, I think, the U.S. has to be front and center on. And a lot of that is, is basically dependent upon this strategic equilibrium with Turkey in a lot of ways. I mean, again, we talked about the Turkey torpedoing the, the, the flotilla. I, I mean, and I've seen efforts by the U.S. to do this at a very senior level. Back in 2018, I attended a conference that was organized by, by then Admiral James Fogo, um, who was then still the commander of the U.S. Sixth Fleet, which brought together all the naval, all the all the naval heads of the littoral states, except of course Russia, um, and all the uh, U, the U.S. ambassadors in 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 the in in the littoral states. Um, but what what I walked away from that from from was the most intransigent party there was Turkey. Um, they, 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 they were the, the, for lack of a better term, the stuck of the garden party there. Basically they were shooting down everything the others wanted to do. So let's, how do we, and Jeff, you, you know, Turkey very well. We talked about Turkey a bit earlier. Um, what do you, how do we pursue a strategic equilibrium with Turkey? How do we square this circle? Yeah. So there's a couple of things here. I mean, one is how do you get the political relationship with Ankara back in a place where it's not focused on mutual recrimination? Uh, I think we've seen some steps in that direction already. Um, Erdogan has been trying to patch up some of the quarrels that broke out with neighboring states earlier on in his term. Um, the U.S. is still, that, that's a little bit harder 
and I think there's still some real substantive challenges to to doing that. Um, many of which don't have to do with the Black Sea at all, but have to do with uh, U.S. policy in Syria, the presence the presence of Fatullah Gulen in the United States, and and various other things. So I think some of those there's a capacity to address, but it's easier if there's more trust, and I think that kind of trust would be frankly, easier to build under a post-Erdogan yeah. government. Um, even if that government has a similar view of Turkey's place in the world and, and strategic priorities. Um, one way or another, though, you know, we need to deal with Turkey as it is. Um, and that means accepting, one, that its commitment to the Montreux Convention and the limits on foreign naval presence in the Black Sea is going to remain robust, regardless of who is in power and that it's going to engage with Russia. It's going to pursue its own interests in that bilateral relationship, probably in ways that we don't like. Um, but also that it is a significant military power. It's the largest and strongest military power in NATO after the United States. And so when you think about what do you do with Turkey in the Black Sea, I think one of the big things is figure out how you can leverage Turkish capabilities to achieve common objectives. Now, Turkey is going to want to do a lot of this on its own. Uh, it's going to want to not allow, you know, a permanent naval presence from the United States or the UK or any other allies into the Black Sea. But it's building up its own naval capabilities. Uh, it just launched uh, its first... Um, uh, uh, amphibious landing ship with um, uh, helicopter carrier capabilities. It, it, it's quite an impressive ship. Um, its drones have been instrumental uh, in the war in Ukraine. Um, a senior official I spoke with when I was in Ankara pointed out that a missile launched from Crimea can hit Ankara in about one and a half seconds. Uh, so this is like a very real um, concern that uh, the government and the and the strategic community uh, recognizes. And so Turkey wants to have the capability to cope with this threat. I think it wants to believe that the United States and NATO are going to back it up uh, if something bad happens. So I think all this talk about should we kick Turkey out of NATO, you know, is, is really, really... Counting. You can't do that. You can't do that. <laughs> you can't do it anyway, but it, it, just having the conversation is really counterproductive. Um, but I think also, you know, having discussions with Turkey about how their capabilities can be employed in ways that serve allied interests. So, uh, you know, one thing that had was raised point was whether this new uh, amphibious landing ship, the the Anadolu, um, could be uh, put under could be a NATO capability. That it, it could be given to NATO as as part of. Uh, you know, make it an alliance capability. And I mean, that's an interesting idea, right? Uh, it would still be commanded by the Turkish Navy. The, the, the Turks would still be sort of determining what role it was going to play. But there would be more sort of efforts to integrate its operations into common uh, security objectives. So I, I think things like that are, are important. Yeah, what I'm hearing from you is regardless of what happens in the election, regardless of whether Erdogan stays in power, we've got a lot of work to do in either uh, contingency, but it, the job will be a little bit easier in a post-Erdogan Turkey. Is, am I correct? Am I reading you right there? That would be my assumption, yeah. I, I think there's probably too much expectation in Washington that if uh, Kamal Kılıçdaroğlu becomes the, the next Turk, there'll be a full reset and that we'll go back to the kind of halcyon days of, of U.S.-Turkish relations that you know, maybe existed at, at some point during the Cold War. Um, I don't think that's the case. Right? I, th I think the the transformations that are underway in Turkey, that have been underway in Turkey really since the 1980s, are such that Turkey is going to be a big power. It's going to be a swing state. It's going to be a country that wants to uh, pursue its own interests, even as it remains an important pillar of NATO. Um, but if you have a government that is less kind of, uh, is nursing less of a sense of animus at the U.S. and at the West, and that is maybe less uh, sort of driven by 
uh, resentments, uh, which I think Erdogan has built up a lot over the last 20 years in power, um, then you might be able to have a more productive dialogue with the senior leadership. Um, but we are not going to change. In fact, I just saw, you know, right before we came on the podcast, um, Kulich Dodolu's main uh, foreign policy advisor, the guy who likely will be the the foreign minister in a Kulich Dodolu government, basically said he didn't anticipate major changes in Turkey's relationship with Russia. Um, so I, I think, you know, we have to keep that in mind. Right. Lisa, anything to add on Turkey? And then I wanted to hear from you on democratic resilience. No, I think I can jump to resilience in the few minutes that we have left. I think the broad objectives for the U.S. and the, and the, and the alliance would be to um, reduce the tools that Russia has for economic coercion against these states by facilitating more east-west transit, a lot more uh, goods are transiting through the South Caucasus and Turkey into Europe, developing the critical infrastructure, the connectivity, and then helping these both allies and partners decouple from Russia. And that is on a number of different areas that we've already talked about. The energy uh, dependencies, the information environment, ensuring uh, transparency around ownership and media literacy skills. And then for the governments, the European Union, financial institutions, to make sure that we continue to prioritize strategic projects of strategic significance and enabling these countries' ongoing efforts to counter corruption, which is at the end of the day the, the primary tool that the Kremlin has used um, to, to exert leverage. And of course, all of this resilience depends on security. Uh, so on the, we have to continue to supply Ukraine um, with, with whatever we can to enable it to strengthen its position vis-a-vis -vis Russia on the battlefield, while also keeping in mind that, as folks in Romania told me, there is no security for Ukraine without a security solution, which is what they say for Georgia and Moldova. So making sure we think about security in a more comprehensively for the region and not just about Ukraine so that these other projects, the economic, the energy, the information environment, these can all move forward, um, strengthening the, the resilience, the democratic institutions and the resilience of these states that aspire to join the EU and NATO. Well, I certainly hope U.S. policymakers and policymakers in other Western capitals take all your recommendations on board. We're bumping up against the end here. Jeff, any last thoughts before we wrap it up? Just that, again, the, the outcome of the war in Ukraine is going to be really important for all of this. And I think we can talk in conceptual terms about what a laxy strategy should look like. But at the end of the day, I think one of the best ways for promoting security in the region is ensuring that the war in Ukraine is brought to a conclusion favorable uh, as far as Ukraine is concerned and that allows it to maintain uh, control over as much of its Black Sea coast as is at all possible. Uh, if not all of it, I would I would argue. And on that note, that would wrap it. That would <laughs> that's that that that's what we're hoping for. And I I do want to hear policymakers start to talk about not just being with Ukraine for as long as it takes, but to add two more two words to that formulation: as long as it takes to win. Um, so on that note, we shall wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from downtown, uh, joining me from historic downtown Washington has been the one and only Jeff Minkoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and the author of the recently published book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. And also joining us from our nation's capital has been Lisa, Lisa Aronson, a research fellow for Europe and NATO at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and a non-resident senior fellow at the Scowcroft Center for Security, Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. Jeff and Lisa are, are of course, the co-authors of the recent report that we've been discussing this past hour, The Inhospitable Sea, toward a new U.S. strategy for the Black Sea region. And I will note once again that Lisa's and Jeff's views are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. Thank you both for an enlightening discussion and making us all a whole hell of a lot smarter. 
Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. I'd also like to thank you for accepting my invitation. also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. Keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Bell handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can still follow us on the Twitter, at Power Vertical. The Power Vertical Podcast will take a two-week hiatus as I will be traveling, interestingly enough, to the Black Sea region, but we'll be back in action in the first week in June. Until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 